Welcome to Researchers, podcast show about ideas and quest for knowledge. Got out of NSA as fast as I could uh, because they started spying on individuals. Primarily, the main issue for us, legal issue, was the U.S. citizen issue. Like they, they started pulling in data about U.S. individual U.S. citizens. Former NSA employee and whistleblower Bill Binney exposed changes in a program he invented uh, to track U.S. enemies overseas. He says it was twisted after 9-11 to allow domestic spying, and he says it violated Americans' rights. He says he became a political target after that. My son answered the door, and they pushed him out of the way at gunpoint and came upstairs and pointed guns at my wife. Hello everyone from your host Giuliano Marinkovic and this is second episode of the podcast show Researchers. We are continuing with our trilogy. This will be the second part of our NSA and domestic surveillance trilogy. In previous show we had Mark Klein, uh, AT&T whistleblower, the show that you can listen and you can catch up if you missed it. So on the similar note, today uh, our guest will be uh, NSA whistleblower, Mr. William Binney, who is very outspoken. There are a lot of his interviews uh, floating uh, out there. He had an impressive career in National Security Agency uh, over 30 years there. And he resigned uh, in October 2001, and he was directly opposed to domestic surveillance uh, policies that are still causing a lot of ethical debates. Uh, William Binney was part of the team who was designing the Tintred program. The plan of this system was to achieve gathering of intelligence data, but in the same time also to preserve privacy. So, coming next, in a few moments... You will hear the interview, my archived interview from November 2013, when I was uh, producing the TV show uh, about signal intelligence and electronic surveillance. Uh, So, as I said, this will be the second part of the three-part series. So, buckle up your seatbelts. We will be back very soon. Before we start our interview with William Binney, I will tell a little bit more uh, about signal intelligence, intelligence procedures and the whole theory uh, behind it. So let me just briefly mention that electronic warfare is a part of military science that can be divided in several areas. One of these is electronic interception or uh, SIGINT signal intelligence that can be additionally divided to two sub-areas where we have uh, COMINT as communication intelligence and ELINT which is electronic intelligence. COMINT is nothing else but the communications that uh, are uh, intercepted and they are used specifically in communicating between uh, human entities, let's call it like that, used for direct communications of 
military institutions, different commercial institutions, and so on. On the other hand, uh, electronic intelligence is more uh, focused on the evaluation and interception of the emissions from machines uh, or uh, different devices uh, could be in the form of different telemetry signals, uh, radars, and so on. Also, we have electronic jamming, radio goniometry, where we are able to pinpoint the location of the radio transmitter and maybe in such a way to evaluate the distribution of the troops on the enemy line. And also we have electronic deception, where different false information could be distributed uh, through electronic means. The best example, I think, is a World War II operation, uh, Operation Overlord, known as Invasion to Normandy, where Allied forces implemented many deceptive procedures through uh, false radio communications to make enemy to think that uh, the troops are completely differently distributed than like it was in uh, reality. So this is sort of a theoretical segment of electronic uh, warfare. And now we can see that the border between the military usage of these intelligence procedures is uh, not so clear. So this is a brief theory how uh, everything works. And now I would like to send my greetings to William Binney, who is now with us on the other side of the line. And before we start to go into today's subjects deeply, which are NSA and domestic surveillance, I would like to ask Mr. Binney to give us expanded overview of his background. I do recall that I read and uh, that I heard in many of your interviews that you were involved in intelligence operations during the Vietnam War. Uh, you were active in signal intelligence procedures, which led you in the end towards your overall career uh, in national security uh, agency. Uh, please uh, describe to our listeners how your career in these fields uh, has started. Okay, well, I started with the uh, in the Army in 1965, and uh, I was uh, initially sent to Turkey to serve a sort of tour over there, so I was there for a year and a half in Turkey, and then they sent me back to NSA while I was still in the Army. So, uh, and then I spent the rest of my time there. Uh, the, the, the point was that I, I had, uh, I was watching all the things happening in Vietnam simply because I had some friends there, you know. So uh, I was concerned about that. So I, I monitored that, and uh, and I was basically still uh, focused on the Soviet Union as the primary target I was working at the time. So then I uh, then I uh, got out of service in 1969 and uh, came back to work. Uh, NSA wanted me back as a civilian, so I came back in uh, early 1970 as a civilian. And then I worked there again, focusing mostly on the Soviet Union for about 27 years. <laughs> and then, uh, then I became the technical director of the World uh, Geopolitical and Military Analysis and Reporting. And that meant basically the uh, intelligence reporting for the world. So then I was working on that. Uh, and the problems there, they got me into, um, into the um, Current uh, digital world of communications on the internet and the uh, and the wireless phone systems as well. So 
So that's basically the background I had and uh, the, what I was working on throughout that period of time. That was 32 years, basically, as a civilian with NSA and then, and then uh, four years in the military doing SIGINT operations there. Before we move to the issues of domestic surveillance, I think it is uh, also very important to mention that signal intelligence procedures have a very rich history. And there was uh, quite a lot of achievements that were made, especially in cryptography. During the Second World War, one of the most famous uh, achievements was the breaking of the German uh, Enigma code. And I can probably bet that there was a lot of things happening uh, behind the scenes during the Cold War. Of course, uh, without breaking any security clearances and in connections probably with some limitations that you still carry regarding your uh, previous career. So within these limitations, it will be great if you could present our listeners uh, some of uh, these uh, important achievements in intelligence history. Uh, well, you know, my uh, my understanding of the Enigma went like this. Uh, it was originally intended to be a German um, uh, uh, commercial in- encryption system. And so as a part of the process, they were having the, the Poles were manufacturing the equipment. And in the process of manufacturing it, what they were doing was, uh, you know, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd number stamp each part as it came down the line, so, and keep upping the, the next one, be the next number up, and so on, so they'd have an, a number series of parts and could account for all the parts. But as a part of that process, the poles didn't step the numbering scheme. In other words, they would print, print uh, two parts with the same number in sequence and then take the one, take the second one, and let all the rest pile up and go down, you see, so that they could get copies of the Enigma device, the physical device, uh, uh, out of the production in in Poland and keep it there. Then the only issue was to get the keys, and that's what my understanding also is that the Poles were able to get some of the keys and and also read uh, some of the Enigma when they were uh, just before they were being invaded in 1939. And uh, as the invasion came in, they knew they were going to be overrun, uh, so they took their copies of the Enigma and gave it to the French and the British. So they had the physical equipment there. That's how that how how they were uh, able to get into it so quickly is because they had the base equipment. Then the issue was only to find the key and discover the key. Well, you know, on the battlefield, there are many ways to get the keys. You know, from from combat and and material left on the battlefield. So. That kind of thing helped them out there too initially, and then they got into the hang of how to how to recover the keys over and over again. And they built the bomb, which was a semi-computer, to help them discover what what keys were being used day after day. So that was a that was a that's basically the history of it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it, it was really a, the poles poles were the ones who really got us into it. So. Yeah, and uh, during Cold War, I guess there was many successes. Uh, if you want to mention mm. any, oh, I mean, you know, it's just detecting things in advance and making sure that the your, your leadership knew about them, like the invasion of Czechoslovakia or the invasion of Afghanistan, or the threats during the Yom Kippur War, or any of those kinds of events. You know, were you needed to figure that out in it and be able to predict those kinds of things and warn leadership so that they didn't make mistakes that would only escalate the issues or escalate the problems.
and that's basically that's basically what the what what the whole intelligence process is supposed to do. That's in that's pre that's intentions and capabilities reporting of potential enemies. It's not the forensics issue like after the after the Boston bombing. It's not a question of going back and finding out who did it, how did they do it, and so on, so you could put them into court. That's the forensics police approach. For intelligence, I mean, since you were in it, I mean, the point is you need to be able to predict in advance what your potential, what your enemy was about to do and what he was capable of so that you can prepare to, to meet it or counter it. Especially on the battlefield, in, on the tactical sense in real time, too. So, exactly. Th yeah. Uh, thank you for this overview. Now we will fast forward the clock to the present or to be even more precise uh, to the last uh, few uh, decades where you were also a maker of the intelligence uh, history. But let's first discuss about the technical uh, problems that uh, intelligence agencies all over the world uh, started to encounter uh, with the beginning of the Internet era. I guess the problem was directly connected with the fact that the traffic over the Internet was becoming higher and higher. Uh, during 90s, especially uh, in 2000s, many different types of communications were moving to the Internet with different data protocols uh, and so on. So just to directly intercept uh, conventional satellite communications was not enough anymore. So you can introduce to us the Tint Red program that was a very good project to solve that issue. Yes, that was that was the issue. Uh, was the volume and velocity and variety of data being passed around, mostly on fiber optic lines, uh, but also in other media, you know, cables, standard cables, and like on the phone network and uh, and satellite phones and all that kind of stuff. So, so the whole idea was that uh, there was so much information being passed around the world that uh, it, we were having a difficult time coping with it all. And since the uh, the bad guys, uh, the criminals around the world and uh, militaries and others, the governments were starting to use that system too. So it it meant that our our primary targets of interest were in a, embedded in this massive amount of information passing around the world. So we had to devise a way to be able to look into that data without having to look at the data because there was too much there to be able to look at. So that was basically what we, we ended up with ThinThread was first to acquire the information and then to, um, and then to look, be able to look into it and select out monitoring it, not, not taking all of it in, just selecting out that that was relevant to an issue that we were working on like terrorism or, or money laundering or dope smuggling and things like that. Um, and so that's what we did. We were able to do that by looking at metadata um, of uh, people who were communicating and that, and then building their social networks in the world, and then seeing which ones were participating, the, which social networks or groups or communities were participating in these various activities, and that allowed us to select out that information as it was passing by without taking in everything. You know, we weren't we weren't uh, we weren't collecting everything. We were only collecting that material that was relevant to some sort of issue that we were working on. And that was, uh, that was the main difference from what they actually did afterward because the system we designed would simply manage everything that you gave it, no matter how much you did it. We didn't see any limit in how much it could manage. So 
that's what they did. They they said, okay, let's just take in the whole world and not uh, and not focus in on things that we knew would help would uh, were involved with bad uh, bad activities or criminal activities in the world. So. Yeah, and uh, your program was also developed within within the agency without any outsourcing. The cost was uh, very realistic in that sense, and it was a very powerful, well, uh, kind of artificial intelligent program because it created graphs and so on. So maybe a little bit on on that uh, path too, if you can tell us. Uh, well, the the idea was yes, uh, the social networks uh, are basically what's called graphing now. That is where you do, um, uh, like if if uh, like you called me. Now you're in my graph. That means <laughs> I have a link to you, and I. What it means uh, then? It simply takes links to everybody else that I call and links them together. Like I'll, I call you, I call another person A, person B, and so on. So then that all that linking shows my social network. Okay, everybody that I relate to when I'm when I'm using the phone, and you do the same thing with email and banking and so on, or travel, and that kind of linking, um, uh, travel linking, or or human contact linking, or, or bank transformation, uh, transla- transaction linking, all of that basically puts together a social network that you're involved with in life, and so that's that's how we would uh, be able to relate. Uh, and pull back together the um, the terrorist networks and all those other illegal uh, activities and all the networks that were supporting them. So that and that was for everybody in the world. We could do that for everybody in the world and had no problem being able to manage that level of uh, of uh, data input. We could take trillions of li- trillions of transactions and boil them down to billions of relationships and then pick out the networks that were important out of those billions of relationships and. Uh, pull that data out if it was relevant to an, an issue like terrorism or money laundering or whatever. We would know how to index that and have those communities mapped out and use those met, that metadata that defined them to extract it from this continuous flow of tens of terabytes a minute of data. And uh, constitutional rights for domestic surve- surveillance would be, uh, of course, <laughs> obeyed within threat rights. Yes, and also we didn't take any data in on, on individuals in, in foreign countries either because that was easily definable by simply exclusion. If it didn't fit into our known sets of communities of, um, of, or of activities of bad guys, we simply didn't take the data in. So it was basically a way of also providing privacy to everyone in the world. Yeah, so, so there was no building of archive. Everything else was simply a noise, right? Yes, that's right. And you simply you wouldn't need things. You wouldn't need to build storage facilities like in Bluffdale, Utah, the big facility they're building out there, or the one they're building another big one over here at Fort Meade. And there's another one down in San Antonio, and a number of others around the country and around the world too. So, so you wouldn't have to have all that storage because you wouldn't be taking in all the data. And it seems that internal problems for you started uh, after the 9/11 when General Hayden from NSA had completely different idea how to resolve these problems. Uh, what was happening during that era? Yes, uh, that's the uh, main reason I, I, I uh, got out of NSA as fast as I could, uh, because they started spying on individuals. Primarily, the main issue for us, legal issue, was the 
U.S. citizen issue. Like they they started pulling in data about U.S. individual U.S. citizens, as well as all all other citizens of the world. And that's the part that I uh, basically objected to because it was a violation of our constitutional rights, and also it was uh, it was making uh, analysts dysfunctional by piling all this data on them to to sort through. So technically, there was a, a basic flaw in the logic to taking in everything because their 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 philosophy, I think, was t- taking in everything. If there's a, if there's an issue anywhere, we'll have data to work on. And the problem with that is. If you use the analogy, they use the needle and the haystack analogy. If you have a haystack, uh, it doesn't it doesn't help to make that haystack ten orders of magnitude larger, because that only makes it orders of magnitude more difficult to find that needle. And that's fundamentally what they've done. Of course, another part of the equation is the outsourcing and the connections with uh, giant corporations that were developing uh, new programs for uh, National Security Agency, while on the other hand, you already, you and your team, you already had solution with the Teen Thread program. Uh, compare for us, please the differences between your program, Teen Thread, and the giant program, uh, Tradeblazer, that NSA was uh, developing and which was never active uh, in the end. What was the difference of expenses and cost uh, between uh, these two programs? Uh, uh, yeah, well, Thin Thread cost uh, uh, from scratch to develop it and have it deployed and functioning about $3,200,000. So um, the other program uh, that you're referring to, I think, is Trailblazer. And that, that program uh, costs a little over $4 billion <laughs> and uh, actually produced nothing. It had nothing operating. Uh, yeah, uh, you you tried with your colleagues to uh, to alarm uh, some uh, other government bodies uh, about this whole situation. So, what was the outcome in the end of your initiative that you started on that note? Yeah, uh, as soon as they started expanding to the individuals and collecting data on all the individuals, especially on U.S. citizens, that was a direct violation of our constitution. And also on any number of the laws at the time. Uh, so the first place I went was to the House Intelligence Committee that's supposed to be doing the oversight of these intelligence agencies to ensure that they didn't spy on U.S. citizens. <laughs> that was the founding. That was why they were formed back in the late 70s, because they came out of the Church Committee investigation of NSA spying on U.S. citizens. And that, was, that, that created the FISA law and the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and in two, and they, those those committees and that court was were created to ensure that the intelligence community agencies didn't spy on U.S. citizens or violate U.S. law. Uh, so, <laughs> but that didn't that basically didn't function at all from the very beginning. It just it just everybody kept conforming to the law for a long time, and then. See, because they realized that the uh, the oversight of those uh, of those agencies was basically a joke. The intelligence community committees and the FISA court basically had no way of verifying anything they were told by NSA or FBI or anybody else. And they knew they were being lied to at various points in time, like in uh, August of seven night of two thousand and two, 
the New York Times published an article where they realized that they had been misled for 75, at least 75 warrants from the FBI. So that tells you they knew they were being lied to. They, they just didn't. They just didn't figure out a way to go back in and verify what they were being told. You know, so it's that old Russian proverb: trust but verify, right? <laughs> so uh, the only thing they did was trust that what they were being told was correct, and they had no way to verify it. Uh, yeah, so your complaints probably put you on the radar with your oh, yeah. <laughs> other <That's for> sure. <laughs> other colleagues too. Uh, can yep. you explain us the point in time when you decided to leave? I think your two colleagues, Mr. Lomus and Kurt Wiebe, and uh, yep. w what was uh, the, the uh, aftermath of that, uh, how the government uh, reacted? Well, uh, they did so, any number of things. One, uh, we... Uh, we all three of us there left the agency at, in, uh, on the 31st of October of 2001. That was as soon as we could get out, the fastest way to get out of the agency at the time. And uh, after we did that, we tried to uh, go to, you know, the, the techniques that we were using in ThinThread were also usable in any, other, any uh, number of other kinds of large data uh, approaches like Medicare, Medicaid fraud, stock market, you know, banking transactions, all kinds of large data set analysis. So we we tried to um, to go into that and get and start a consulting business to get that going. And every time we got contracts or started on contracts, uh, NSA and or the FBI had us had those contracts terminated. So we were basically being blackballed from any labor or work. Uh, that that the uh, that NSA can could influence, and then of course we kept complaining to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees and, and members, other members of Congress, about the corruption at NSA, and using the classic case of Trailblazer as the as the point issue, which was really much larger than that. But that was only one of the programs that that this these kinds of uh, defrauding the public and you know just uh, corruption. With, between industry and NSA management. Uh, so after we we uh, we filed then in late 2002, September 2002, uh, we filed the uh, a, a complaint with the Department of Defense Inspector General's office, and that one basically accused NSA of corruption, fraud, waste, and abuse, and. Uh, and laid out the case that we were stating, uh, Thin Thread and, and Trailblazer is the case to look at initially. Uh, plus, uh, plus it was uh, it was a, a, a greater statement of the underlying culture at NSA and how it related with uh, with corporations. And the issues really weren't well known within the government because the government never audited. This government accounting office never was never allowed to audit NSA. So, in other words, this was all done in secret, and this was setting that foundation and, and basis for for corruption that was uh, persistent there over many decades. Yeah, the government, uh, based on all this data now that is out, uh, simply said to NSA, "Here's a blank check. Uh, what is the amount?" And uh, many corporations right. jumped the gun, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, after they started spying on the individuals and U.S. citizens as well. After that, why? It just uh, kept expanding over time. More, more companies became involved, and so on. So that uh, you know, that latest uh, uh, 
court order, the FISA court order issued to Verizon that was that was published on the web by the Guardian, I believe, uh, or the Washington Post, and or both of them. Uh, it listed uh, it listed the serial number of that order as uh, BR thirteen slash eighty. That meant uh, it. They put the whole business records, the BR business records, in one series of numbers. So, and it was for the 2013. That was the 80th order of 2013. That was the second. Uh, that was the second quarter of 2013. So that was the second order to Verizon. The first one, therefore, was further on in in the number scheme, the lower number. But the way I figured it, uh, they did the telecoms first because they were the first to join the business records transfer back in 2001. And then it expanded into probably banking and then into um, into the service providers on the Internet. So that meant, uh, and my guess was that of the telecoms, they were probably ordered AT&T and then Verizon. So that would mean AT&T in quarter one of 2013 was, uh, was order number one, and, and Verizon was probably the next biggest telecom in the U.S. was probably number two. So that's one and two. And that means that if Verizon is two in the first quarter and 80 in the second quarter, that there's up to 78 companies involved in this in this business records transfer. Now that should include all of the telephone companies and all of the internet service providers and probably some of the major banking uh, banking uh, system banks like uh, you know the big ones in New York and. I don't know how, how yeah. I don't know how far that went around the world, so you know it's hard to it's hard to tell. But uh, it looked like there was at least 78 companies involved in business records transfer. Yeah, uh, everything's at the end culminated. Uh, you were raided by FBI, and can you describe yeah, how, yeah. how yeah. that all went and what was the reason and how it finished? Well, as a part of our uh, as a part of our uh, complaints to different people in government and the inspector generals, we also went to the Department of Justice inspector generals too. too. Uh, and so that all what that really did was give made us noticeable. <laughs> and so, you know, after the uh, after the New York Times uh, exposed the uh, spying uh, program in December of 2005, uh, they. Uh, they started an investigation to find out who leaked the information. Uh, well, it wasn't us, but they and they knew that from all the metadata and contact systems and chaining that and social network that they've been building. They knew that we were not involved in that. But still, they got our names as the from the Department of uh, Defense Inspector General's office. They got our names as those who filed the complaint against NSA. And so NSA had that. Uh, grudge and they wanted to give us a little retribution for that for filing that complaint so they got the FBI to raid us you know in uh, July of 2007 they raided us and uh, what I meant was uh, a group of uh, all four of us who signed the uh, the DODIG complaint uh, Kirk Weeby, Ed Loomis, Diane Rourke and, and, and me those are the four of us who signed the IG complaint and we were the four raided simultaneously uh, on the 26th of July of 2007. See, Diane lives on in Oregon. That's on the far west coast. And all three of us live in the Baltimore, Washington area here. So they raided us here at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they did her. They raided her at 6 in the morning. So that meant time-wise we were all raided, raided simultaneously. 
that was their coordinated raid. And it, it uh, I mean, they came in with guns drawn here on my house. They didn't do that with others. But uh, so they, uh, they had uh, about 12 people go to each house, I think it was. So uh, that was quite an investment for investigation for the FBI. They were all FBI agents. Uh, and they took our computers and uh, electronic storage devices and some papers and other things and uh, and went away. And they kept investigating and so on, but never really charged us with anything. They attempted to uh, frame us. That is, they tried to concoct a charge against us uh, using falsified uh, data. So they were. Uh, they assumed that we did not have any of the data left, but when in fact we had most of what was there, we already we could recover from others or from uh, uh, our, our website online. Uh, and they uh, they didn't realize we had all that. And that's why we could defeat their attempts to frame us and uh, maliciously prosecute us. So uh, then after we got through with that, that was about 2009, but the end of 2009 when that stopped. And then they gave us letters of immunity to try to come in and and testify as best we can for, you know, telling them anything we could remember, which we did. We didn't really have any evidence on anybody that would implicate them in a crime. But uh, so they they then, uh, they were still keeping all of our material, see. So we... uh, we collectively started a 41G uh, lawsuit against NSA, the FBI, and the DOJ, Department of Justice. And our lawsuit was simply to have force them to return our property that they took. I mean, after all, it's everything we created. Nobody in the government created it. And uh, we... we uh, we knew that the law said that they, if they were going to keep anything, that they were to notify us within 60 days. Well, this was 2011, which is like what, four years later. We filed this lawsuit, and they haven't told us they were going to keep any of the material, so they're not. They violated that that, that law too. <laughs> so, and they re, really didn't want to. Uh, they never wanted to return the data. They just wanted to punish us for filing that DODIG complaint. Which, by the way, is a part of the part of the ground rules or, or rules for employment with the U.S. government is to report fraud, waste, and abuse and corruption, which is what we did. So, and the Department of Justice or the Department of Defense Inspector General found that what we had said was true, and that was published. And uh, the the NSA uh, was able to redact about 98 to 99 percent of it <laughs> because. Because it it was uh, too embarrassing to them to have it exposed to the public, because of all the corruption and incestuous relationship with corporations and so on, and uh, and the waste and squander of money. I mean, it was just the resources were were just squandered there. So they uh, they just uh, continued with that and uh, kept, tried to keep the material, and they and they claimed under. Uh, in court, they claimed under NSA, a, an NSA Act of 1959, they were permitted to keep material because it was that they deemed it sensitive that they weren't they weren't uh, obligated to return it, and that meant that you know they could keep it from from view of the public. So that's what they argued, and unfortunately, the courts agreed with them. So fundamentally, it meant that they. 
they could keep whatever they had and not tell us what it is that they thought was sensitive so we could uh, argue against that. So we didn't have a chance to get due process on that, and they still have that material, so we've just given up on that, basically. Uh, what was in that data? Some kind of notes or complaints that you copies, something like that? Uh, no, it was just uh, the general um, statements about what they were doing without giving specifics. So ah, it, right. it was sensitive in the fact that we were laying out the problems that they were, uh, the corruption that was involved in, and, uh, and who was finding out about it could verify it and, and, and testify to it. Oh, okay. So they didn't want that knowledge out. Yeah, internal material from, from your group of colleagues. And, uh, yeah, you... our emails and things like that, with not, not just between us, but also between others who have been investigating the same problems, like in NSA. Yeah, uh, I was shocked to hear that uh, during the raid, I, you you were in the shower. Can you describe the emotions during oh. during? The, I mean, it it was really shocking to to read that. Yeah, <laughs> well, when they broke in, it was nine o'clock in the morning here, and I was just getting up. So, I was in the shower, and my wife was getting dressed, and so my son answered the door, and they pushed him out of the way at gunpoint, and came upstairs and pointed guns at my wife. And then I came in the shower and pointed a gun at me. So, you know, it was, first of all, it was pretty hard for me to believe they were doing that because uh, I was participating with them. They had been interviewing me for uh, uh, about since March and uh, of 2007. So between March and, and July of 2007, I was interviewed about three separate times for about three hours each. And I had been cooperating with them, telling them everything I could remember. Uh, and... Uh, So I was kind of surprised why they were doing this. You know, the first thing came in is you kind of, uh, why, you know, and you're asking yourself, why are they doing this? And then it, later on, it became uh, pretty clear that they were here to intimidate us, to keep us quiet and, and uh, eliminate any potential of us talking to uh, members of Congress about the illegal programs, uh, unconstitutional programs that uh, President Bush and, and Vice President Cheney started with uh, General Hayden and General uh, and uh, Director of CIA Tenet. Yeah. So uh, that was the whole objective of them, and I basically accused them of that when they were here. And I also reported the crimes of those four, Bush, Cheney, Hayden, and Tenet, were conspiring to subvert the Constitution of the United States and violate any number of laws, and all that is now just coming out the surface here. Like now, they claim that it's all legal, but the problem is, it it, it it's only legal retroactively if you think of only the law. But if you take it into the con Constitution, it is unconstitutional for them to collect that information about the U.S. citizenry which means that any law that they pass, like the retroactive immunity to the telecommunications companies, that retroactive immunity they passed in 2008, and, or, and that was or 2009, one of the two, and it was to, uh, to keep the companies from, being, uh, from the lawsuits against all the telecoms to go into court so that the, the telecoms would have to pay penalties for what they were uh, basically ordered to do by the government. <laughs> In other words, the crimes they were committing, they had to get retroactive immunity for, which is what Congress stupidly gave them. And then, uh, and then, so the issue is that any no law can be passed that authorizes unconstitutional activity. That law, in turn, is unconstitutional, which means that it's not a law. 
which means the telecoms would, if we can get this into court and get a ruling on the constitutionality of it, then all those laws fall that defend them, their entire house of cards falls, and all those telecoms are now legally liable. Yeah, Constitution is a higher body. Uh, and, yes, uh, that, that's the founding uh, foundation of our government, yeah. What is the aftermath uh, now for you? You are very outspoken, you are present at many events that discuss the issue of domestic surveillance. Mr. Thomas Drake, the another NSA whistleblower, is also out there. So what is the current status of your projects and your plans? Well, we basically aren't working. I mean, you know, they they basically put us out of work. So, but we are basically talking about yeah, in the <clears> public all the, arena, all the things right. they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I, go I, ahead. I meant in the public arena. Uh, well, uh, we are speaking out uh, at different conferences. Like I was just at the uh, Oklahoma University Law School, and I was also on uh, a television show, Bill Mayer's or Mar Bill Mar show. And then on uh, uh, on the, there's various panels going on. I'm going back to Germany in the January in uh, Munich and Berlin to talk on different panels and give give a talk on the these issues there at the at the IT conference in the in Munich. So and I just I came back from uh, Vienna where we're doing a. Uh, a uh, documentary film, and then uh, also I was in Switzerland earlier in September, giving a talk to the uh, the Swiss Polytechnical University. Uh, oh. So I, I'm getting around trying to spread the word and explain the things so that they can't so that the government here cannot bamboozle the public into thinking the thinking the way they want to without without addressing the truth about what they've been doing. Thank you, Mr. Bini, uh, so much for the opportunity to interview you, and thank you for all the information that you shared with our listeners today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Nice to talk to you, too. Yeah, have a nice day, Thanks. and uh, all the best to your family. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. That is all what we prepared for our second edition. We will continue with the third part of this three-part series in the next episode. There we have a quite a big surprise for you and it will be a great conclusion of our trilogy. Thank you once again for your patience and for being with us today.